If the United Nations Human Rights Council were a figment of George Orwell's imagination, you'd probably say, okay, very entertaining, but even accounting for dramatic license, this is a bit over the top. The UNHRC is a club for many of the world's worst and most chronic violators of human rights. Those who win election to the council enjoy the privileges of membership, virtual immunity even to criticism. Except, of course, for the U.S., that's fair game for criticism, and Israel has long been the council's whipping boy. President Trump and his ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, withdrew from the UNHRC three years ago. President Biden has reversed that policy. The U.S. has just won election to that body again, with the Biden administration promising that re-engagement will lead to reform. I'm Cliff May. To discuss the U.N., human rights, we have with us Rich Goldberg, senior advisor to FDD, who has held senior positions in the House, Senate, and National Security Council, Ord Kittry, a senior fellow at FDD and a tenured professor of law at Arizona State University, and Morgan Vigna, who served as chief of staff and senior policy advisor to U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley, and is now vice president for government affairs at JINSA, Jewish Institute for National Security of America. I'm pleased you joined us too here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the Jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981. Still in the we game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So Morgan, uh, Tell us about what the council looks like uh, after this new election with the U.S. now uh, back as a member. So the, the council is continues to be made up of about 47 members. Um, 18 new members were, were reelected um, last week. Um, the council itself um, is broken up um, by, by regions. Um, we've got Africa, Asia Pacific, Latin America, and the Caribbean states, you've also got Western Europe and Eastern European states. And so um, membership is really broken up by geography. Um, this last, uh, with this last election, um, as I said, 18 new member states um, came onto the council, including the United States. Um, some of these member states were pretty benign, good human right, upstanding human rights, you know, respecting countries, others, not so much, you know, Eritrea and Somalia um, were, were also reelected um, to, to, to the Human Rights Council. Um, and I think, you know, the challenge that we have here is that the, the membership of the Human Rights Council is made up of, you know, some of the worst of the worst human rights abusers. Um, China, Cuba, Pakistan, Venezuela, they're, they're all members and they, they all have a seat at the table in terms of um, establishing, you know, international human rights norms, which of course is um, uh, is pretty ridiculous, quite quite frankly. And so, uh, unfortunately, I think what we, we have here is, um, you know, the Human Rights Council's membership looks a lot like it did under the the Human Rights Commission, which was actually disbanded 
um, because it was such a farce. I mean, even Kofi Annan, um, former UN Secretary General, basically said that you know the Human Rights Commission lacked credibility and it was an embarrassment to the United Nations. Um, and so the General Assembly you know, created the Human Rights Council. But the problem is that the Human Rights Council looks a lot like the Human Rights Commission. Let me just continue with you on that for one second. So they looked at the Human Rights Commission. They knew it was a dysfunctional body, that it wasn't achieving, that it was doing bad things. They said, OK, let's figure out how to reform this body. And they attempted to do so. Actually, I remember being briefed on this way back when. Um, what didn't they understand? Why, why, would they, why would they, instead of reforming, replicate and make exactly the same mistakes? I mean, if you, that, that, that's, that's kind of startling in a way. And certainly it's disturbing if, if the attempt is actually made and it fails as egregiously as it has. Right. So, so when the General Assembly um, got together and created the Human Rights Council, um, it, it really failed to adopt any of the standards or criteria that, that frankly, would have been necessary for reform. Um, so as an example of this, the United States wanted you know, a much smaller body that was more selective in its membership and, and less unwieldy. Um, so membership went from 53 member states to 47, right? Not, not a big difference. Um, then, of course, um, the United States also wanted um, a prohibition on selecting, or excuse me, electing um, nations that were under UN Security Council sanction um, or for, you know, notorious for human rights abuses. And, and that didn't happen. And so when, when you lack any sort of accountability or, you know, election criteria, um, you get basically the same thing. We're going to talk about it a little bit because the... It, 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 members are elected in what are called non-competitive elections. What does that mean and what does that imply? So a, a, a slate is put forward of candidates um, and those candidates are voted on by, by private ballot or by secret ballot. So, I mean, that's part of the challenge with, with the council is that all, all of the votes for member states are, um, or for, for members to the council are, are in secret. Um, there's no transparency. Um, or accountability for for who votes for her, who. So as a result, you get human rights abusers that you know elect their own kind um, to the council, um, and you have this this cycle of um, of just the status quo, right? Yeah. Or did the Union Rights Council uh, describes itself as a body within the United Nations responsible for strengthening the promotion and protection of human rights around the globe? Can you think of any examples where it's actually done so? Unfortunately, the Human Rights Council has not lived up to its ideals. It has a laudable mission, but unfortunately, in practice, has been, in my view, a net minus in advancing the cause of human rights. It's served to whitewash the human rights records of many of the world's worst regimes, who can now say to their people, we can't really be that bad. The UN Human Rights Council has never once issued a resolution condemning us, unlike those Israelis. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you a quote from Ambassador Haley, who you worked for, Morgan, but then I think I may go to, uh, to, to Rich. She said, for too long, she said this back in 2018, the Human Rights Council has been a protector of human rights abuses and a cesspool of political bias. 
she used strong language that you often don't hear in diplomatic parlance. And I, I, I for one, always uh, appreciated that. Um, well, no, let me, let me go back to you when they got to get on this, Morgan. You, you guys, uh, you must have thought, okay, is there a way to reform it? And then, and, and I'm guessing you looked at possibilities and at a certain point you said, no, there's really no way we're going to have to withdraw from this body and not give it credibility. Is that, is that fair? You know, Cliff, when we were taking, when Ambassador Haley um, was really sort of putting a spotlight, spotlight on the Human Rights Council, she, she was doing so because, partially because of um, its disproportionate focus on, on Israel, right? Um, Israel is a country that the UN loves to rake over the coals any chance it gets. Um, and, and, and there's this tremendous bias against Israel. And Ambassador Haley um, has always said that we stand up for our friends um, and we have their backs. And so when we look at the Human Rights Council and specifically some of the, um, and how it operates, you know, particularly you know, the standing, um, standing agenda item seven, which is the only agenda item that focuses on a specific member state, and that is Israel. Um, it, just, it just demonstrates the, just the blatant bias and outright anti-Semitism um, um, of, of the United Nations. And so I think when Ambassador Haley was really trying to take a look at reform, it was, it was more holistic, right? Item seven was, was in getting rid of item seven was, was part of that, right, package. But we were also looking at other criteria, such as stricter membership criteria, going back to 2006 and saying, okay, well, what did the United States want to reform them and what didn't we get? Um, and so stricter um, uh, membership criteria is one item. Um, improving elections, and this includes you know, altering election thresholds, increasing the election threshold um, from an absolute majority to a two-thirds majority, um, as an example. Um, so this would reduce the opportunity for um, human rights abusers to essentially win seats on the council. Um, also, um, I think really taking a look at, as I said before, item seven and removing that bias against Israel was was a huge, huge part of um, the, the reform agenda. Um, throughout the entire year-long process in which um, Ambassador Haley and, and um, sort of the, the, the Trump administration really sought to, to pursue reform, you know, they spoke to about 125 different countries, um, trying to get them on board with this agenda. Um, and frankly, it just, it didn't work. Um, it couldn't mobilize the support. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, Ambassador Haley, um, Secretary Pompeo and, and others in, in the administration um, really felt the, the right move was to, was to leave. Um, by, by staying in the Human Rights Council, the United States was lending its credibility to an organization um, that was just intent on perpetuating the status quo. And Rich, while the uh, UN Human Rights Council is reluctant at best to criticize a member like China or Russia or Venezuela, uh, the United States is not immune to criticism from that body. They know they, they they they're not. It's not afraid to take on the the, the U.S. as it is the authoritarian states, right? Uh, well, that's correct, and uh, obviously they they have done that in the past, uh, even in the recent past. Uh, every country gets uh, a review uh, of their own record, including the United States. Uh, and we've seen increasingly, and you've seen this rhetoric, not just in the Human Rights Council, but at the Security Council and the General Assembly, other fora, 
where China, Russia, uh, primarily other detractors as well, uh, will look to paint the United States uh, as backwards, uh, as a human rights abuser in its own right, uh, systemically racist, uh, all, all these different terminologies where we may have a domestic debate going on in this country, they will take that debate out of context and use it for propaganda purposes on the international stage in different ways. Uh, they'll also try to accuse us of war crimes in Afghanistan uh, or elsewhere, uh, as they, as Ord knows and has written about, as they pursued investigations at the International Criminal Court uh, for such matters as well. Uh, but I think, you know, fundamentally, the real question now for the Biden administration is, this has been tried before. You just heard Morgan talk about what the Trump administration tried to do while staying in, right? People think, oh, Trump just pulled out of every international organization. He was just, well, they actually, they stayed in for a year and a half. Uh, they did work on reform and then felt it was impossible. The Bush administration under Patrick Bolton decided not to go into it in the first place. You know, they looked at it and said, this is just systemically broken. There is no way structurally that we could ever get anything done in this council under its rules and governance structure and its membership uh, criteria. So we're not even going to lend a credibility from the beginning. Secretary Clinton, uh, as Secretary of State under the Obama administration, led the United States back into the council for the first time with this new council replacing the commission with the exact same pledges that we hear today from Secretary Blinken which is we have to be at the table to reform it. We have to be engaged to reform it. Okay, well, eight years went by and they could not, the Obama administration could not get that done. The Trump administration came in, could not get that done. So now Secretary Blinken says, no, we are the team that's going to get it done. Well, guess what? Here's, here's your first challenge right in front of you. As Ord and I just wrote about in the Hill, the... UN Human Rights Council earlier this year set up a commission of inquiry to investigate Israel, not just for war crimes. Yeah, we've heard that one before from the Human Rights Council. Remember the Goldstone Report. But now to investigate them and try to label them as an apartheid state. Yeah, you've heard that propaganda before. You've heard that sort of rhetoric uh, even here in the United States from some extreme members of Congress. This is outrageous. This is totally outrageous. This is a resurrection of Zionism is racism. Right. This is bringing everything that you hated about Zionism, racism, everything, every reason we boycotted the Durban conference and putting it into an official investigation and commission funded by the United Nations at the Human Rights Council to label Israel an apartheid state. OK, Mr. Secretary, you think you can get change done? OK, let's see you get it done. Let's see you dissolve this commission of inquiry. That should be your test. And if you fail that test. Let's not keep going with this charade anymore. Should should the Biden administration have set up the criteria before running for re-election? In other words, saying we want to re-engage. We have been paying for this body because it goes through the general budget. Um, but we want to see some reform. And then after we see some criteria for reform achieved, then we will run for election and be back on it. But if not then we're going to find a way to cut the, the and no American taxpayer funds are going for it. In other words, rather than say we're going to get back on the body and then we're going to sit down with our colleagues and have a good conversation, which, as you say, has been tried before and always failed, should they have set criteria beforehand and said it's up to you whether we rejoin or not? I think that made sense in the context of an organization like the WHO, where the WHO is an organization that needs reform, that needs better leadership, 
but fundamentally is an organization that should exist, in, at least in my view. And if we are going to be the largest funder, we can demand specific reforms to return our participation and our money and, and have you know, a candidate run against the director general, ensure that we have leadership there, ensure that we have systemic reforms at, at the WHO. At a place like the Human Rights Council, now this is just me talking, I, I don't think that's ever possible. I don't think you're going to get structural change there. I don't think the way you elect people, the criteria, all the things that Morgan talked about is ever going to change. And therefore, I, I would have focused on what should be the Human Rights Council. What do we want there to be instead of the Human Rights Council? We're not in it. Let's bring our allies together. The president talked about a summit of democracies. Let's talk about a forum that we believe should exist and make that the primary place where democracies come to discuss human rights, not in the Human Rights Council. Mm. Uh, is that something you think still should be done? Should there be a, 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 a council of demo, demo, democracies that meets on human rights? Is that possible that that would work? I think it's an interesting idea. I think it's something that should be explored. Uh, I, I think it's possible for us to have a meeting uh, that, that explores these issues. I worry about anti-Israel bias that exists in Europe and whether or not these issues would still creep in there anyways uh, from some of our European allies. Uh, I also fundamentally think that when you think about crimes against humanity and the intervention of the international community, it's why we have a security council. Um, and if the security council cannot act as it has not uh, many times because of Russia or China blocking, we think of Syria as an example. Well, then that's simply, you know, an indictment of Russia and China, and and we that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep forcing the issue at the Security Council. Um, but yes, if we want to have discussions on spotlighting human rights, we have a State Department, we issue annual reports, we can meet with our allies, both bilaterally and multilaterally, we have forum of our allies of democracies, we can expand the NATO alliance and think of a NATO plus ambassador Bolton in past episodes has talked about that with us. So yes, there are, there are venues for democracies to sit and talk about these issues. The human rights council is, is not the one. Or the, the, the bias against Israel, the making Israel into a whipping boy by so many UN HRC members. Is that a matter of, Jew hatred? Is that a matter of convenience? Is that a matter of how do you what to what do you attribute attribute this egregious and, and really destructive bias? Which and you, this is the second part of the question, which is getting stronger, not weaker, right now. So, as has been referenced since the council's creation fifteen years ago, it's adopted unbelievably more resolutions condemning Israel than every other country in the world combined. In contrast, the council has adopted zero resolutions on the gross human rights abuses, for example, in China, Cuba, and Russia. Uh, that's because it has been uh, the council has been used to whitewash these regimes. I think. You know, does anti-Semitism exist? Absolutely. Is that why Israel is being chosen? Probably a big part of it. But the main thing is that for these countries, the UN Human Rights Council, they're not interested in advancing human rights. They're interested in whitewashing their own records. And by putting uh, funds and attention on persecuting Israel, which is basically what they're doing, they distract from their own records. 
Uh, and this is a problem uh, not only here, but also in other UN uh, bodies, but it's particularly pernicious here because again, the UN Human Rights Council has a laudable mission. I mean, I support promoting human rights around the world. But because of its focus on Israel, I think it, it's been a net minus in advancing the cause of human rights. We mentioned briefly something called the Commission of Inquiry. Why don't you talk a little bit about what that actually is and what it's attempting to do? Sure. So the Commission of Inquiry, I think, is, uh, as uh, Rich and I wrote, it's, it's, it's the most insidious assault on Israel to date by the UN Human Rights Council, right? I mean, we saw in May, Hamas terrorist organization rained thousands of rockets down on Israeli civilians while Hamas used Palestinians as human shields. This was a double war crime, right? It's a war crime to target civilians, including Israeli civilians. It's also a war crime to use your own civilians as human shields. But rather than condemning Hamas, the UN Human Rights Council voted to establish a new commission of inquiry, which goes beyond what its previous commissions of inquiry have done. Uh, in a number of ways, this commission of inquiry is worse than the Goldstone Commission. It's worse because it's in perpetuity. It's worse because it uh, opens uh, the ambit of what it's looking at to include pre-1967 Israel, as well as the territories. It's no longer just focused on a particular conflict, but it also includes this language, which clearly is laying the groundwork for the Commission of Inquiry to accuse Israel of committing apartheid, which is false. Israel is not committing apartheid. But the problem is that if you have something like the UN Human Rights Council labeling Israel as committing apartheid, that is a very powerful slur, which will uh, reverberate. And to the degree that we are currently seeing people accusing Israel of engaging of apartheid, some members of Congress, some others uh, overseas, some human rights groups, it's going to be a lot worse if the UN Human Rights Council comes out with an accusation that Israel is committing apartheid. And that's why it's really important. And as Rich mentioned, it should be agenda item number one for the Biden administration at the UN Human Rights Council to push back on this, to cancel this commission of inquiry, to starve it of funding. You know, I, I keep you, or but others feel free to weigh in. People may think, well, to call Israel racist or call Israel apartheid, that's nasty. That's a slur, but you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but worms could never hurt me, kind of thing. But it's not in this case. I think you should talk about why. I mean, the ba the basic idea is if it's not, if Israel is an apartheid state, it's not a legitimate state. If it's not a legitimate state, it shouldn't exist. If it shouldn't exist, force, in, including terrorism, is permissible uh, to 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 correct the situation. Is that uh, too simplified a a set of options that, that, that I see unfolding by those who are leveling this charge? No, I think that's exactly correct, right? I mean, if you're accusing the Israelis of committing war crimes, of having, uh, shall we say, uh, overly trigger-happy soldiers, well, a lot of countries have been accused of war crimes of having, you know, overly trigger-happy soldiers. And the, the obvious solution for that is for the countries to be more careful to change their rules of engagement. But if you are going to accuse Israel of being engaged in apartheid, which, by the way, would be making it the first country since 
apartheid South Africa, which is accused of engaging in apartheid, you know, the label is particularly dangerous because it delegitimizes the entire Israeli national enterprise. An apartheid state implicitly deserves the same fate as that of white-ruled South Africa. It's clearly designed, the apartheid charge is clearly designed to normalize calls for doing to Israel the same thing that was done to white South Africa, asphyxiating it. And uh, the charge is incorrect. The charge is incorrect because uh, it uh, is based on an invented broader definition of apartheid. And it's incorrect because uh, Israel's uh, treatment of its uh, Palestinian uh, citizen, uh, of its Palestinian neighbors and its Arab citizens in no way resembles uh, the way that the South Africans treated blacks. You know, Rich, when, when South Africa ended apartheid, that meant that there would be majority rule in South Africa. Well, if there were majority rule in Israel, who would rule? Well, actually, the majority does rule in Israel. The majority happens to be Jewish with about a 20% minority of Muslims and Arabs and others. The only way you can say you don't have majority rule is to say that the belligerents living in what are called the Palestinian territories, I would call them disputed territories for reasons we may or may not have time to discuss, say, well, those belligerents have to be given citizenship so that they can be the majority, so that the belligerents who are trying to bring down, and they say this clearly, Hamas and even Fatah, bring down the Israeli state, they get to rule, which means they win the war or the insurgency they're fighting from outside Israel's borders, established borders, right now. It's a way of saying we want Israel to lose and die. Is it that? Uh, listen, I, I think that that's exactly what it is. Uh, I think fundamentally, this is an objection to the concept of a Jewish state existing. That's what it is. Uh, and if you take the premise that it is just intrinsically a racist endeavor to have a Jewish state of Israel, that Zionism is racism, then, then let's call that what it is. That is anti-Semitism. That is textbook anti-Semitism. In fact, it's the working definition of anti-Semitism that's already been adopted by more than 30 countries, including the United States State Department uh, under the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition. Uh, this is a very complex conflict, as we know. These are disputed territories. Cliff, as you've uh, talked about many times, uh, if the if the Israelis were simply to withdraw unilaterally from uh, all the West Bank over to the Green Line of 1967, the way that they unilaterally withdrew from Gaza, you would end up with what you see in Gaza in the West Bank today. Uh, and you would absolutely not see a state of Israel much longer after that, the way we know of it today. Uh, the fact that you have Arabs serving in the Supreme Court of Israel, a functioning democracy, a flourishing court system with, with rule of law, that you have Arabs in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, that you have Arabs now in the coalition government that rules the state of Israel for the first time in history. It is mind-boggling to sit at a council and allow a commission of inquiry to staff up with 20, 25 researchers paid by U.S. taxpayer money and others from around the world from U.N. dues to allow that to label Israel an apartheid state, which is, as we talked about, rooted in this anti-Semitic vision of Zionism being racist. 
We cannot allow that to happen. There are tools the administration can pursue. And I think this is their moment. They're on the clock. They've put themselves up to this challenge. They've put themselves there for U.S. credence, credibility, tacit approval, being on the line here as being participating in a commission when it will come out with this report. If they do not stop this, then they will have to take a different line of effort after that because they cannot associate with a council that would label the state of Israel an apartheid state. I also want to make this point that not only is the goal for Israel to be wiped out, but people who say they're pro-Palestinian have to understand that if the West Bank were to be, if the Israelis were to withdraw from the West Bank, it's almost certain that Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, one of those organizations would take it over as they did in Gaza. And they would begin to lob missiles on Israel. And the Israelis probably would say, we're not going to sit here and die if we can't stop these missiles through Iron Dome or in other ways, we're going to have to fight those who are attacking us. And Palestinians are going to die as well as Israelis in the war that follows, however that war comes out. And there are a lot of people who seem to think, or, or, or don't seem to think about that, don't even address that consequence. And the other thing, anybody who's been to Israel knows, there are black Israelis, particularly from Ethiopia. I remember as a journalist visiting Ethiopian Jews in the north as they were beginning to walk out of the country to Somalia to go to Israel. There are brown Israelis from places like Yemen and other parts of the Middle East where they never left. It is a, you, do, you do not see as diverse a country in the Middle East that I can think of as, as is Israel. I just think that's usually important to, uh, to point out as they are making this false charge of, of apartheid and racism and attempting to delegitimize the only state in the world that has a Jewish uh, majority and the last viable Jewish community in the Middle East. And people forget that the Middle East had many Jewish communities for more than a thousand years. 1945, Baghdad was one third, about one third Jewish. Uh, Tripoli and Libya uh, had a huge Jewish population, again, close to a quarter or something like that. They were all expelled or forced to flee from those countries. And the, the, the the place many went to was, of course, Israel, which took them in as, as refugees. Order, before we go on to other subjects, you order or, 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 or more, do you have other points you want to make on this on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about, you know, we've talked, the UN Human Rights Council, it's, uh, it's, it's a very troubled institution, but uh, I think that it is possible for the Biden administration to wage a campaign which can make a difference on the commission of inquiry issue, right? I mean, this is not a situation where there's nothing that can be done. There are some natural allies and a full-fledged aggressive diplomatic campaign by the Biden administration to do what they said they would do uh, which is to fight the anti-Israel bias at the UN, this is something where there are some natural allies. And I think it's important to point that out because we are, we are holding them accountable. We're expecting of them something which is in fact doable. Be hard, but again, there are some natural ways of going after this. First of all, um, you know, the, the Commission of Inquiry is not scheduled 
to present its first report to the UNHRC until June 2022. So there's some time for a diplomatic campaign. Concerned UN members could seek to block funding for the Commission of Inquiry. Uh, as we've mentioned, the UN's Fifth Committee controls the budget. Uh, my understanding is it has not yet been passed for next year. Uh, the Commission of Inquiry, as we understand it, is due to receive uh, more funding and more staff than any prior Commission of Inquiry on any topic in the history of the UN. That is, uh, in my view, outrageous. Uh, and meanwhile, the resolution itself, the resolution creating the Commission of Inquiry, passed depending on how you look at it, by a relatively narrow margin. It passed by a vote of 24 in favor, nine against, and 14 abstentions. That's 23 out of 47 countries that were obviously uh, somewhat uncomfortable with it. It passed in the wake of emotions uh, at the time of the war in Gaza. It passed, as I understand it, in an almost total absence of U.S. engagement. The U.S. is now going to be, as we mentioned, a member of the U.N. Human Rights Council. The resolution could be rescinded, thereby canceling entirely the Commission of Inquiry, or the mandate could be amended to remove, for example, the exceptionally uh, problematic apartheid language. Who might support this? There are a number of member states that could uh, support this. First of all, we saw dozens of UN member states withdrew from the Durban Four Conference because the Durban uh, series of conferences had involved a lot of uh, problematic anti-Semitic rhetoric. Those are potential uh, allies. We also, as Rich mentioned, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism includes as an example, and I quote, claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Well, accusing Israel of apartheid is literally by definition claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor. You have 30 some members of the IHRA that should be willing to go to bat for Israel at the UNHRC uh, and otherwise. And finally, you also have several countries which have interceded on Israel's behalf at the International a Criminal Court, uh, arguing that uh, Israel should not be investigated by the International Criminal Court because Palestine is not really a full member state, et cetera, et cetera. Those countries include Australia, Austria, the Czech Republic, and Germany. To my mind, it's actually a lesser lift for them to intercede at the UNHRC and say Israel is not an apartheid state than to get into the very technical arguments that they actually got into uh, arguing that the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction over Israel. So there are potential allies. What we are asking the Biden administration to do is something that I think has some hope of success, but they've got to be really focused. They've got to be really dedicated. They've got to put some diplomatic capital into it. All right, a couple more subjects I want to hit on. Um, Morgan, you if, if I can yeah, sure if I can just jump in here and, and, and just you know, already made some really salient points. I just want to be able to uh to sort of pile on top of that in the sense that I think it's really important that the Biden administration gets out in front of this. Um, they have until June when this report is due. Um, and I think it's really important for them to be to to wage an all-out campaign against the COI. 
um, and really put the facts out there. Um, I know that, you know, Jonathan Shanzer's got his book coming out in November. Um, Jinso, we have our own report coming out on the lessons learned of Gaza also coming out in, um, in November. And it really takes a look at, you know, what actually happened on the ground, what actions Israel took to not only protect civilians, but ensure that um, the law of armed conflict was, was fully adhered to. And I think it's important that this narrative is, is really put out there. And we are on the offensive about this because I think for too often, um, there's been um, sort of, the, the United States has been in sort of reaction mode and it's time to, to really go out on the offensive when it comes to um, defending Israel. Um, all right, <laughs> we haven't yet to see any signs of this from President Biden, from Secretary of State Tony Blinken, or for Nikki Haley's successor, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, or uh, have I missed something? No, I mean, I think, no, but that, that's absolutely right. Look, the, the Biden administration made no secret of the fact that it was going to join the U.N. Human, or that it was going to seek election to the U.N. Human Rights Council when it came, when it came to office. That, that's pretty clear. I, the administration, Biden administration has also been very, you know, it's not like they've been wearing rose-colored glasses. They've pointed out the challenges of the council, um, specifically, you know, item seven, um, agenda item seven, this, you know, you know, this focus on, on, on bias against Israel. Like, that's all out there. Um, there's the recognition of that. The problem is they haven't done anything about it, right? There's been no action, no plan. It's just been a lot of words, a lot of rhetoric about how the Human Rights Council needs to change. And it's important that the United States is a part of that conversation in order to change it. And this requires getting tough, Cliff, with allies or supposed allies, specifically those who receive U.S. foreign aid, right? I mean, you look at the, the membership and you look at the list of countries that voted to establish this commission of inquiry to label Israel an apartheid state, Pakistan, Armenia. Uh, there are some very interesting supposed allies, partners of the United States, recipients of U.S. foreign assistance. And clearly, the people who are in Geneva casting these votes are not receiving any instructions from capital. And so, as, as Ord said, you put together the list, you figure out exactly where the votes are, and you go all in. And then you put forward that resolution to dissolve this commission. And you go into the fifth committee of the UN, the budget making committee, and you say, I am not going to allow any money to go to fund inquiries, to fund researchers, to staff this commission. Let's remember, this council just allowed the Yemen Commission of Inquiry to expire, right? It's not like the issues of Yemen just went away, right? But the, the mandate was up for renewal and they just decided to let it go. They didn't have enough votes to keep it going. Oh, well, bye-bye. So Yemen doesn't deserve any more commission of inquiry, but we're going to have one just to focus on Israel and label Israel an apartheid state? That's outrageous. Um, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield Morgan um, also said in a statement that, well, by the way, she did say that the, the council, that the U.S. will oppose the council's disproportionate attention on Israel, but it, but again, no actions to back that rhetoric up have been taken yet. She also said the U.S. would focus on a number of countries that are human rights abusers, one of them being China. Um, 
what might the U.S. actually do on the Council to to focus on China besides saying that we're going to focus on China? Is there a way to actually do that? Because as Roy pointed out, the Council has never dared to take on China or ever wanted to, maybe dared is not the right word. No, I mean, I think Ord made a really good point there. And and I, yes, China is, as, as I mentioned in, in sort of the answer to your opening question, um, China is among the, the greatest human rights abuser, abusers that are members of the council. Um, and I think what you've seen China be able to do is really manipulate, politically manipulate the council to, to whitewash its own record. You know, so for example, back in 2019, you know, China really used its clout um, to uh, deflect criticism against the Uyghur population. And it's not only done this on, against the Uyghurs, but it's been able to deflect criticism uh, with respect to Hong Kong. So I think China's really been able to, to sort of use its, throw its weight around within uh, the council, but, but broadly the, 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 U, like the international community and specifically international bodies like the UN to, to really sort of, um, try to reestablish um, and reframe international norms um, and, and values, and, and human rights are not immune from that. And, and or the, well, no, actually we've got a rich on this, but feel free to weigh in too. It, we, we talk about the members and uh, of the council, but it's worth spending just a moment on the staff of the council, the bureaucracy of the council, because the bureaucracy of the council, uh, this is perhaps less well-known, has tended to, how to say, to um, to kowtow to the Chinese, among other things. Um, not and well, we've you and I have done a podcast with Emma Riley, who was a staff member and a whistleblower, uh, because you had this you had the staff, if I understand, of the council telling the Chinese Communist government. Um, you probably want to know who's going to testify about human rights abuses against the Uyghurs, and we'll give you their names, and then China and then the Chinese authorities can intimidate and threaten uh, those witnesses or their families. That's pretty much what she's been talking about. Am I am I correct uh, with on that, Rich? That's correct. Uh, she came out a couple of years ago with evidence that this was happening, that that people working at the Human Rights Council were turning over the names of, of dissidents and witnesses to Beijing. Uh, the UN claims that that uh, ended in 2016, I believe, but there is no evidence that it actually has ended uh, to date. There's been no independent investigation of this outside of the Human Rights Council. And suddenly, over the last couple of months, uh, Emma Riley, after having appeared here on Foreign Policy, uh, and after we had uh, been raising a lot of questions about what is going on at the Human Rights Council, after China got elected back to the council starting this year, uh, suddenly her whistleblower status has been pulled. She has been charged by the UN system with violating UN rules by speaking out and sharing confidential information, quote unquote, uh, which actually doesn't say that she's wrong. It just claims that it's confidential and she shouldn't be sharing it, which is completely outrageous. And they are preparing to terminate her. It could be the end of this month, could be in the next month. Uh, it, it's been uh, quite the drama unfolding. And to date, the United States government has not intervened on her behalf. And if the United States has now been elected back to the council, this is the moment for the UN ambassador, for Linda Thomas-Greenfield, to go to the secretary general and say, 
this cannot happen. And this is also the moment for Congress to reevaluate and say, whoa, it's interesting to me that for several years, the Congress had adopted in the Foreign Operations Appropriations Bill uh, specific language that said if any UN agency is caught violating whistleblower protections, the U.S. would have to withhold 15% of our contribution. Uh, this, there are a couple of examples that uh, uh, prompted this. The, one of the most high-profile one was the International Civil Aviation Organization. Uh, this was suddenly removed from the Foreign Ops Appropriations Bill in the last appropriation cycle uh, in the current fiscal year that, that, that just expired. Why that disappeared, no one really knows. Some sort of deal between the State Department and the outgoing Trump administration and the appropriators in the Senate. But after that disappeared, with China coming to the council, suddenly whistleblower protections from O'Reilly are removed. Well, then Congress should think about reasserting that withholding requirement, because by the way, the investigation, the charging, the violation of whistleblower protections is actually happening by the secretariat, not by any individual organization like ICAO or WHO. This is by the UN secretariat, which means, as I would think of it, UN dues should be restricted for whistleblower protections here. And if you're listening, Secretary General, this is a big, big, big deal in the United States, whistleblower protections. And the U.S. mission needs to act, and they need to act now. Ord, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this goes to a much broader issue of how China is running rings around the U.S. in the U.N. system writ large, uh, not just in the UN Human Rights Council, but in the UN system writ large. And that is something it seems to me also that the Biden administration needs to take on. They need to have a systematic approach to pushing back an organization after organization where the Chinese government is working to silence their critics and advance their agenda. Uh, among other things, last I checked, 15 out of the main UN organizations, uh, there were 15 main UN organizations and four of them are headed by Chinese uh, personnel. Uh, these Chinese personnel, unlike American personnel, uh, seem to be taking orders from Beijing. And that is uh, not only politically problematic, it's also illegal. Uh, the uh, UN uh, governing rules specify that if you are a UN civil servant, you are not to be taking orders from your national capital. That is something that needs to be policed more aggressively. But bottom line, the US needs to take a systematic approach to pushing back against Chinese influence across the UN both at the UNHRC and also in all the other UN agencies and bodies. Morgan, I'll give you the last word. Thanks, Cliff. I, I could not agree more with, with Ord's comments on, on, on Chinese influence within the UN system. I think um, this, is, this is not new. China has been seeking to expand its influence with that throughout international organizations now for, for years. And the fact that the United States has not countered Chinese influence sooner means we are behind the curve. And so I think moving forward, um, this administration and future administrations need to prioritize how they seek to engage China at the multilateral level 
um, as well as how they how how they compete at the inter, at, at the international level. I think too often we think about China um, in, in competition with China in terms of of, of military um, engagement, but I think we need to refocus and start prioritizing our, our, our diplomatic engagement at the multilateral level. You know, um, the Biden administration is a huge challenge at the UN Human Rights Council and the UN in general. I'm not optimistic, but I, I really hope that uh, we'll come back together next year and I'll say, boy, was I wrong. They were up to the challenge. Look at the changes they made for the good in favor of human rights uh, at the UN. And, and beyond. I hope that's true. To be continued. Until then, thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Ward. Thank you, Rich. And thanks to all of you who have stuck with us here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.